Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you were here. Before we open up God's Word this morning, let me just share something that's um, been on my heart. You know, what we have here at Four Oaks, I believe, is a special community of believers, a family of believers that share life with one another. And I'm so thankful for the way God has knit our hearts together. My burden is that all of us would experience that. And so if you are someone who is relatively new, or maybe you've been here a long time and you've just been more on the periphery over the last season, or just have never really plugged in and developed relationships, um, let me just make a plea to you to say, hey, let this season be the season that you unite your hearts with the family of God. Not ceremonially, not um, through religious um, show and tell, not that sort of thing but really deepening your walk in Christ with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's a great opportunity coming up on Saturday, October 30th. We do this about three or four times a year, something we call Welcome to the Family. And it's a chance for you to be introduced to the family of God here at Four Oaks. And we talk about our vision, our theology, but really it's a chance to meet the elders and pastors and staff, to meet other new folks in the church as well. Again, it doesn't matter if you've been here um, a couple times, maybe you've been here for years and you just have never really made that venture, that step to say, you know what, I really need other Christians in my life. And so maybe you attended Welcome to the Family years ago, we'll let you come again. But if you're a regular and we see you in the breakfast line, you're going straight to childcare to help us right there. That, there's no doubt about that. Anyway, that's coming up on Saturday, October 30th. We feed you. We do provide childcare. We'd love to have you. But this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter two, so you can open your Bibles there. I was counseling um, with a young couple recently. In fact, their, their wedding was yesterday and they were getting ready to move into their first apartment as a married couple. And they told us where they were going to live. And I said, oh, that, I love that place. But Susan and I lived there when we first, 25 years ago, when we first moved to Tallahassee. I'm not going to tell you the name, so don't email me or torture me or anything else for that name. But I said, we loved it there. We just loved the people and the management and the property was kept up so well and they were super responsive. I built this up, right? I really talked, talked it up to them. And so they were moving their stuff in this past week. And it's never a good sign when the first thing that you notice when you open the door is the smell of a dead animal, right? Or something was dying in the refrigerator. I don't know what was going on, but they said it was a nightmare. Um, nothing worked, appliances, no, nothing had been painted, nothing had been cleaned. It was like somebody had just like moved out the day before, which they probably had. And so they called the management, and the management came over and kind of took one look around and said, well, it is what it is. And that was lovely, I know. I'm not going to tell you the name of that place, all right? But I'm so very tempted right this moment. But it was an opportunity, right, to understand the difference between having a reputation but then having the reality that stands behind it. And Paul is speaking to the spiritual equivalent here in Romans chapter 2. This was a religious community. It was the, the religious folk in the church which had quite the spiritual reputation, but as you kind of dug down below the surface, it was difficult to tell the difference between spiritual fact and spiritual fiction. Their reputation did not match their reality. And we're going to learn more about them this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read Romans 2 together, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And of course, the Apostle Paul is writing. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God, 
and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord... We pray that you'd give, the cur- give us the courage to stand in front of the mirror of your word. And Lord, that as we have our own hearts and minds and wills revealed, that instead of despairing of self, we would run to you. So Lord, use this text to remind us and point us once again to our great need for a Savior. Lord, thank you that you have provided him. You've provided that Savior. That's your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. You know, the way that pastors are creative is they steal things from other pastors. Um, And so I'm going to have to give full credit to Sinclair Ferguson for helping to inspire this title. Not not the sermon, but the title. And it's the three things we want to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about profession, possession, and confession. Profession, possession, and confession. We're going to see all three of these things in this text this morning. So let's jump right into profession. Right off the bat, Paul tells us the first thing, chapter, uh, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew. Now, please understand something. In the ancient world, to be called a Jew, that was a badge of honor. The Jews were the creme de la creme of the ancient world religiously. They were the spiritual blue bloods. They, I mean... The Jews were hardcore, right? They only worshipped one God, not many. They worshipped one. They didn't worship a statue. They didn't make images to this God. But they claimed to be God's chosen people. They were separated out from the Gentiles around them in every way. The way they dressed, what they ate, their sacrifices, their worship. They were, they were I mean, for the ancient world, they were the exotic animals in the zoo that you came to look at, right? Like, you, you, you're, you're kind of strangely curious about what is going on. And so because of all this, please understand the Jews did not lack for spiritual confidence. And if you look in verses 17 and 20, you can see why. They had the law, which is just another shorthand way of saying they had the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature. They had the very words of God. And this enabled them to have a very privileged status among the nations. They were the purveyors of truth. And I want you to listen to all the spiritual superlatives that Paul uses to talk about them. First of all, he says that you are instructed from the law. 
You approve what is excellent. You're a guide to the blind. You're a light in the darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish. You have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so they stood in a very prominent, blessed place. They were God's chosen people, and they knew it. And they told each other about it, and they would tell you about it if they were here, right? And we had to understand something. We are in a very similar spiritual position as believers in the 21st century in the West. Because just think about for a second, we have untold spiritual resources literally at our fingertips, right? Most of you not only have a Bible, you have multiple Bibles. You have, there are more Bibles in your house than there are people or pets, I guarantee you. You have Bible software. You have Christian friends and community. You have podcasts. You have faithful churches and ministries everywhere. You can dial them up in a heartbeat. You don't even have to leave the privacy of your own home, right? You can dial it in online. You can listen to the world's greatest preachers. And let me say right off the top, this is a blessing. This is a blessing. There's, there's no, I mean, in every sense, technology has been, there are so many advantages to it. We reach more people. We connect with more people. There's more on-ramps for people. However, however, there is a danger here where we begin to presume upon the blessings. And Paul is pushing us to ask ourselves, yes, we have quite the spiritual reputation. But do we have the spiritual reality to back it up? Are we really who we say we are? Now, the reason this is super important is not only when it comes to the issue of spiritual self-deception, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but it's particularly relevant in the cultural climate that we're in, where religion, religion and Christianity in particular are looked on quite suspiciously. There's, a, there's, a, there's an air of suspicion, right, that oftentimes cloud the, the idea of religion, and it's only fueled, right? By, by things like this recent podcast that I know some of you have been following that's released through Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And there, there's a sense in which we, we listen to it and we can begin to sort of take on the attitude of, thank goodness that's not me, right? Thank goodness that's not us. Um, but one of the, the, the devastating impacts of the story of Mars Hill of, is all of the people's lives who were greatly damaged by thinking that the church was one thing, in reality it was another. And so when Paul says here, he reminds us in verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We have to remember, guys, the world is always watching. The world is watching much more closely than we ever dared care to admit. See, we... We are on display all the time. And one thing that our culture has a nose for is spiritual hypocrisy, right? You, you can be guilty of almost anything, but to not practice what you preach is a destroyer of witnesses. Because we understand what Paul is going to point us to here is that a, having a profession of faith is not necessarily the same thing as having possession of faith which is going to be our second point. Now, 
I love a good courtroom drama or scene. I love Law and Order and To Kill a Mockingbird. I even watch Matlock, as terrible as the acting is in that one, for sure. And, but Paul kind of reminds, reminds us of the lawyer here, right? He's the prosecuting attorney, and he has just gotten permission from the judge to treat this witness as hostile, right? And he begins to level a series of questions at them, and he's begin to poke, he's poking beneath the surface, and he's saying, you know, you have this reputation, but what's really under there? What's really in your heart? And he, look at the questions he asks. He says, do you not steal? Do you not commit adultery? Do you not rob temples? And, and even us, we'll sit here and read this and say, no, Pastor Paul, I haven't done any of those things. I haven't physically committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't robbed any temples, whatever that. I didn't like take money from the offering box. I didn't do anything like that. But what Paul is getting us to do is the same thing that Jesus pressed the crowds to do and the disciples to do when he talked about breaking the law and honoring God. And his point was to say, surface obedience or appearance may appear to be one thing, but you have to dig down deep under the ground to find the real roots of something. And this is why Jesus says things like, well, anyone who looks on a woman with adulterous intentions has already committed adultery in her heart or anyone if you if you say raka or fool to someone you may not have physically committed murder but you are murdering someone in your heart now how does paul know this is true about these particular religious jews in the church in rome how does he know this i think it's because a former hypocritical pharisee can recognize a current hypocritical pharisee a mile away right See, this was exactly who Paul was. Paul knew them because Paul had the spiritual pedigree. Paul had all the advantages of being a Jew and being part of God's chosen people. Listen to how he talks about his former profession of faith in Philippians 3. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of this was true, right, outwardly. Paul had quite the spiritual reputation as someone who was very zealous for the things of God. But let's remember, literally, Spiritually and literally, who was Paul? Paul was a murderer. Remember, he was dragging people out of their homes and stoning them. This was, in, by the way, in direct contradiction to Old Testament law. Yet because his cause was deemed as righteous, he had zeal to persecute the church. Everybody loved and cheered on Paul in his murderous rampage. He was dragging people out of homes. He was stoning them, breathing out violent threats, all while he had this sterling spiritual profession and pedigree. After all was said and done, at the end of the day, none of it had penetrated his heart. That's true for people. It's true for churches. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the church in Sardis. And he gives one of these declarations about the church there that, should, that really like gets our attention, right? This was a church that had a spiritual reputation. They had an image that they were faithful. 
But listen to what Jesus says about them in Revelation 3.1. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. And this is particularly alarming. But you are dead. See, this is one of the most alarming passages in Scripture. And understandably, it makes us ask a lot of questions, right? It makes us look at our own reputation versus our own reality our, our spiritual spidey sense might be going off this morning because it does raise a whole host of questions, Pastor Paul, of how does, how does the gospel of grace and faith work with obedience? How do those two things relate together? And I got a number of questions this past week about that very issue. And so I spent a, a whole session in our Monday devotional. I do a pastoral devotional Monday through Friday. On Monday's devotional, I spent a good bit of time talking about this, but I want to revisit it here because it's super important that we get clarity about this, that we understand the, different, the, the way that reputation and reality function together, the way that profession of faith and possession of faith function together. Let me read, for, read to you from James chapter 2. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So there we hear James. And pretty soon we're going to come to a passage in the next chapter of Romans where Paul says this. Think about what we just heard. Faith without works is dead. It's not really faith. The first thing we have to ask, how does this square with Paul? Listen to Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Hmm. Galatians 2.16 is even clearer from Paul. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. These passages stand out to me because they were read to me by my Western civilization uh, professor of history at the University of Tennessee back in 1987 or 88. And I remember he came in front of the class and he read these two passages and he says, so who, who dare tell me that Christianity does not contradict itself, that the Bible is not full of myths, truths, and half errors? How, how do we explain this? And I think it's an important question to ask. There's two important distinctions, I think, between what Paul says and what James says, and I want to show how they relate to each other. First of all, when James says, look back at verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? That faith is kind of in quotation marks. In other words, that sort of faith or that kind of faith. And what faith is he talking about? He's talking about the faith of demons. Right? He says even demons intellectually believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they're not saved because they're not trusting in Christ. They're not begging for his mercy. They're not repenting of their sins. And Paul, what James seems to be saying 
is that that kind of cold, dead, intellectual assent of merely having factual head knowledge about who Jesus Christ is does not save anybody. He says, if that's all you have, that's not enough because that's not really faith. Now, don't get me wrong. We do have to believe certain things about Jesus. We have to affirm certain truths of the gospel intellectually. But what Paul says is that, or James seems to be saying, is real faith is something that will activate your heart. See, if there's no fruit of righteousness, if there's no evidence at all of outward sort of change and inward sort of change, Paul would tell us, James would say, tell us we have to ask, is that faith genuine? Now, the second thing to note about this is under justification in the English, think about it this way. We have words that we use all the time that mean different things in different contexts, right? So if you're going to desert someone, you're going to abandon them or you might be throwing dessert on them, right? Because we, we use it in, in two different ways. Paul, when he uses the word justification, he means it in the legal sense. He means it in a, it's a, it's a forensic term that, that renders a verdict in a court of law, and it means not guilty. And so for someone to be justified the way Paul uses it, he says you are justified or declared righteous because of Jesus, No amount of works will do that for you. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ. And he justifies you by declaring you not guilty and appropriating the righteousness of Christ to your account on your behalf. That's not the way James uses the word justification. James uses the word justification in the sense of showing proof of something. So just imagine for a second, you get that dreaded, piece of mail in your mailbox and the return address says IRS. Does this happen to anyone? It's a terrifying thing, no doubt. Although this past year it seemed like it was always full of money. But anyway, so it's a terrifying thing. But if you get one of these letters and and you're asked maybe, maybe it's part of an audit, heaven forbid, and they ask you to do what? Justify your expenses. Justify your tax write-offs that you've been claiming. In other words... Show us the proof. And see, this is the way that James is using this term. Paul's talking about a legal declaration. James is saying, and if that legal declaration is real, then God's spirit begins to change you from the inside out. Very interesting that both James and Paul quote the same verse to make their case. What is it? Habakkuk 2.14. The righteous shall live by faith. See, if we ask this very simple question, how do you recognize a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? It's not that you don't sin. That's not where we're going with this. John says very clearly, he who claims to be without sin, the truth is not in him, he is a liar. That's not where we're going. A Christian is recognized by the way they respond to sin. A Christian recognizes their failings and their shortcomings, and they are quick to confess. They are quick to repent. They are quick to humble themselves before other people and before God. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. When you're in an argument, are you ever the first one to apologize? Or is, this, or, or, or is or it's getting an apology from, from you just like extracting teeth? 
We have to say, that was the dentist over there that laughed, I think. Anyway, <laughs> seriously. This is why the Bible tells us to spur one another on to loving good deeds, to make your calling and election sure, to work out your salvation with trim, fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you. A Christian is not someone who, <laughs> who doesn't sin. A Christian is one who is not okay with it. And in recognizing their sin is compelled to confess and to run to Christ. So Christian, let me just ask you, how are you doing with that? When, when a brother or sister in Christ brings something to you, some, wants to point out something in your life, or you're reading the Bible in your quiet time and God been, begins to convict your heart, what do you do? What's your first impulse? Is your, is your first impulse to justify does your inner lawyer sort of kick in? Do you become defensive? Do you, do you try to explain your way out of whatever it is that's being brought to your attention? Or is your first impulse to humble yourself and to say, God, show me what you want me to do and to know because of this. I may not like the way this person is approaching me. I may not like the way this information has come to me. I don't like the way that brother or sister engaged me on this, that, or the other. And God's like, I'll deal with them. But for you, how do you respond to your sin? And what Paul and James would both agree on, that the hallmark of the Christian is one who knows they don't deserve to be, who humbles themselves in the sight of the Lord, and that when they are made evident of something in their life, they don't run to the legal stand, they run to Jesus. Which brings us to our third point, confession. Look at verse 25. Paul says, now understand as we say this, the Jews having circumcision was the hallmark of being God's covenant people. It's what set them apart. It's what distinguished them. And so listen to what, and they took great pride in it. They, they just remember all the times in the Old Testament where it talks about the Israel's calling the opponents uncircumcised Philistines, right? So they were very proud of this rite of circumcision. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So circumcision, again, was the mark of being a Jew. It was a sign of the covenant. It was a physical marking on males that was done at eight days, years of age, that physically that represented spiritual separation, okay, and distinctiveness. And the idea was that as the male's reproductive organ is one that is couched in producing life, it was to symbolize that their life was tied to God, their very life, their physical life, their spiritual life. Well, we know from Colossians chapter 2 that circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant. What is it? It's baptism. And baptism is not just for males. It's for males and females. And it's not just for little children. In fact, it's not for little children at all. It's for believers, anyone who's professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why here at Four Oaks, we baptize professing believers and not babies, because the way that God gathers his people under the new covenant is different than the way he gathered his people, which was primarily ethnically in the old covenant. And so Paul uses this idea of circumcision as a metaphor. 
He's, he uses it to talk about the spiritual transaction that happens in the heart of every believer at the point of conversion. And not just conversion, but this is what happens as we are changed to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. The people of God are the ones who are continually having their hearts circumcised before God. Paul says, if you want to know a true Jew, the true people of God, it's not the people that are circumcised. It's the people who are circumcised of heart. It's what God is doing inwardly that counts in a person. If Paul was addressing us today, he would undoubtedly use the term baptism. He would say, four oaks, baptism is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. See, we, baptism is, is a very important sign and seal. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. But when the reputation does, when the profession does not match the inner reality of the heart, Paul says it will do you no spiritual good. Listen to what Paul says, and I think he quotes this. I think, I think Deuteronomy 10 is in the background of what Paul is writing here about circumcision. Look at, listen to Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Listen to this. But the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. See, here's what happens at conversion. And it's an amazing thing. God comes because of your faith in Christ Jesus and justifies you. He declares you not guilty. And not only not guilty, but he also declares you righteous. And now, this is why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to hear that, believer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are fully and completely bound up in him. But God doesn't simply leave us there. God takes the regenerated heart and he begins the process that we call sanctification. It means conforming you to the image of his son. And he will do that until we are home to be with him one day. And sometimes, sometimes, this process can be slow. Let's be honest, it can be torturous. It can be painful. And understand that this is not a secondary experience we add on to salvation. God circumcising your heart is salvation. That's what he does in the supernatural act of conversion. And as Paul says in verse 29, it only happens by the Spirit. When I was trying to think of a good illustration or story that kind of brings this idea alive of the circumcision of the heart of how God is changing us through his spirit, through his word. I had to look no further, of course, than C.S. Lewis, right? Who had a lot of great things to say, but one of his works of fiction. So in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, 
Eustace, and his name sounds about like that, Eustace, by too much to go into, by virtue of a spell or black magic, has been turned into a dragon. And he's stuck in this dreadful, awful state. And Aslan appears to him one night and leads him down to this pool of water where he is supposed to, to, to jump in as a dragon and to bathe. And here's where the illustration picks up in the story. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that there were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully and out. I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, Oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Let me pause there. Lewis is just brilliant here, isn't he? He is giving us the perfect picture of what it's like when you and I try to clean up our mess. When you and I try to make a reason before God, when we try to justify ourselves before him, we're just picking off the scales in our life. And sometimes we even go a little bit deeper and our whole skin comes off and we are so proud and think we have done so well and now God is finally going to love us and accept us. But we look in the mirror and realize we haven't changed at all. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. Can you relate to that? In your own struggles with sin? Are you, can you, is there just some, some habitual sin, something that you continually, consistently struggle with, and you just long to be free? This was useless. I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, listen, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you have ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, whatever that is, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund, here's the last paragraph. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. 
After that, it became perfectly delicious. Can you relate to that, Christian? That thing that maybe for so long has burdened your soul? And you've done everything you know to do. But when you come to experience the supernatural, transforming grace of God, some, let's be honest, sometimes nothing can hurt worse. The only thing worse would be not to be changed at all. You are tender underneath. Your conscience is seared. But God picks you up by the scruff of your neck and begins to wash you and to cleanse you. And that outward baptism that you had now becomes the experience of having your heart clean on the inside. See, circumcision of the heart means that when God approaches us and reveals something to us, however it comes to us, we don't start picking our skin. We simply lay down flat on our backs metaphorically, and we invite God's spirit into our hearts. And his sharp claws, they go deep, and it hurts, but it is oh so precious. Let me just ask you this, Christian. Have you submitted yourself to the Savior's reconstruction of your heart? Where in your life have you been just avoiding the circumcision of the heart that you know you desperately need? I didn't ask if you have an area. I said, what area is it? We all do. And being a Christian means fundamentally not being better. That's not the lesson from today's sermon. That's not, the, that's not what it means to be a Christian, just to be better. To be a Christian means to be broken. And it means to acknowledge our need, acknowledge our desperateness, and to say, God, I am all yours circumcise my heart, change my heart, cut that excess fatty flesh skin away. I want to please you. Where in your life, Christian, do you need to see that? Are you trusting for that? Are you praying for that? Maybe there's someone here this morning, you have never experienced faith in Christ, a circumcision of the heart. This hits right where you are. After the service, I'll be up front. If I can talk to you, pray with you, I would love to do nothing more. God's refining love runs deep because he loves us enough not to let us stay where we are. So Christian, how does your profession of faith match up to the possession of faith? How does does reality comport with reputation? And Paul says, come to Jesus Christ. Know him today. He's the one that wants to transform your heart. Let's pray.